Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books and Psychoanalysis. I am Anna Fishson, your host, and today I'm excited to be speaking with Lana Lynn about her recent book, Freud's Jaw and Other Lost Objects, Fractured Subjectivity in the Face of Cancer, published by Fordham University Press in 2017. Lana Lynn is a filmmaker, artist, writer, and associate professor in the School of Media Studies at the New School. In addition to the book we'll discuss today, she has published in various journals, including Studies in Gender and Sexuality, Women's Studies Quarterly, Cabinet, Art Journal, and Asian American Literary Review. She's She has produced a body of experimental films and videos that interrogate the politics of identity and cultural translation. As part of the collaborative artist duo Lynn Plus Lamb, she has produced mixed media projects since 2001. Lana's artwork and films have shown at international venues, including the Museum of Modern Art and the Whitney Museum, Stedelijk Museum in Amsterdam, Oberhausen Film Festival, and Taiwan International Documentary Festival. She has received awards from the Javits Foundation, Fulbright Foundation, Jerome Foundation, New York State Council on the Arts, New York Foundation for the Arts, Viralist Center for Art and Politics, and the McDowell Colony, among others. I also know from her book, I believe, that she's been in psychoanalytic training. Maybe she'll say a bit about that. Uh, Lana, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, Now, I just want to first orient our listeners uh, and um, describe the book. Uh, So Freud's Jaw is, I think, a very brave book. It's a literary and psychoanalytic exploration of the disorientation and loss the subject experiences when negotiating life-threatening illness, um, primitive anxieties provoked by bodily fragmentation and uh, curtailed future. In the book, Lana brings into view how prostheses and other objects, human and inanimate, uh, are recruited uh, to aid in survival mourning, which she calls the not death of cancer, life with cancer as a kind of queer time. The book is divided into four chapters. The first chapter, Prosthetic Objects, Sigmund Freud and His Ambivalent Attachments, is mainly about Freud's relationship to what he called his, his dear old cancer and his prosthetic jaw. Uh, the psychic and and physical wounds it simultaneously veiled and and memorialized, as well as his other living prostheses, um, his daughter Anna and his his dogs. The second chapter, keen for the first object, the Kleinian reading of Audre Lorde's life writing, grapples with um, what it means to lose a breast, the first object, the first creative act. Uh, for Lord, uh, cancer's attack of her breast was bound up with racist attacks and vilification of women of color. Um, in Chapter 3, Object Love in the Later Writings of Eve Kosofsky Sedgwick, Lana Reed's queer theorist Sedgwick's um, breast cancer advice column off my chest and her uh, memoir, A Dialogue on Love, 
It's, it's an account of her psychotherapy after breast cancer treatment. And finally, reparative objects in the Freudian archives. Uh, that's the last chapter, and it's about, it's about the Freud, Vienna, and London museums, uh, a story about the interplay of absence and presence, metonymy, loss, and reparation. So uh, first question for you, uh, tell us a bit about yourself and the genesis of the book. Um, well, okay. First, thank you so much for that beautiful account of my book. Um, I really appreciated that. Um, so as you brought up, I was initially trained as a filmmaker and an artist and uh, had been um, teaching and making art and uh, became increasingly interested in psychoanalysis, um, partly probably from teaching. <laughs> um, and then actually did, as you mentioned, go into formal training at NPAP, the National Psychological Association for Psychoanalysis, um, probably to that institute mostly because it was welcoming to non-psychological uh, candidates. <laughs> like it didn't have an, uh, a background in psychology or social work. Um, and... Uh, so I was studying to be a psychoanalyst, and then I began a PhD program uh, at NYU, which was very uh, open to and receptive to a very capacious understanding of media. Um, and so I knew that I could probably study media um, and psychoanalysis together there at NYU, and um, very not very long after I entered the program, I was diagnosed with cancer. Um, so while I was trying to think through what I would be doing for a dissertation, <laughs> I was reading Freud, I was reading about cancer, I was experiencing cancer and going through the treatment. And so I, you know, sort of one day was like, well, Freud had cancer <laughs> and lived lived with cancer for 16 years and um, why not write about Freud this is probably one of the first projects that I ever had the title before I had anything else or at least the first part of the title <laughs> Freud's jaw and other lost objects um, so that's where it began yeah well thank you for that I mean I, I got the sense right from the title that it's a it's a personal book I, I was struck by the way cancer brings to life psychoanalytic concepts in the book and the role it's played in the history of psychoanalysis. You know, of course, I knew about Freud's cancer, but um, I, I didn't know some of these details that come out in the book. So maybe you can say something about the ways cancer functions as a metaphor within psychoanalysis and how you feel it illustrates concepts like like the death drive. Right, right. I mean, I was really surprised the extent to which cancer was embedded in psychoanalytic theory and history. I mean, it just kept unfolding and unfolding. Um, you know, cancer as a metaphor for invasion and self-destruction and proliferation, um, all this is sort of seeped into so many concepts that we learn about in, through psychoanalysis. Um, there's, uh, I, I sort of go through a, like a little litany of them, <laughs> like Lacan describing the effects of language as cancerous, 
um, and speech as a form of cancer, Chris Deva defining the symptom as cancer, Ernst Schimmel comparing anti-Semitism to a, a malignant growth on the body of civilization, um, you know, it, and Melanie Klein talking about how patients have a kind of primitive fear of being eaten away as a kind of cancer. Um, so it just, I mean, yeah, as I said, it just kept unfolding. And a couple of the uh, concepts that really struck me were this, um, the concept and the, of the temporality of nechoktokite, <laughs> I don't say that word very well in, in German. Not um, Um Excellent. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Better than I, than I say. <laughs> yeah. uh, the you know the cancer's delayed effect, uh, effect you know kind of mirrors this kind of deferred action of of nucleotides. Um, um, and, the, and also the way in which a cancer diagnosis always has the patient looking backwards for a, a cause or some kind of genetic predisposition um, and also forward to a kind of potential recurrence or, or metastasis. Um, so there's this way that the present state is continually reinterpreted, reinterpreted based on previous understandings of the past. So this to me so, so much mirrored this um, the kind of afterwardsness of of chocolate the belatedness. Yes, and I uh, something you didn't mention uh, just now, but I remembered from the book was um, uh, the cells, the cancer cells themselves, as a um, the way that they proliferate and uh, the kind of death drive quality that they. As, uh, I think it was something about them outlasting or aiming to outlast the 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 host. Right, exactly. There's this kind of fantasy of immortality and actuality of immortality with cancer cells that, um, you know, that uh, the HeLa cells or the cells that were drawn from Henrietta Lacks um, are, are, have been cultured and still remain as living cells. So um, there is a way that they have, cancer cells have attained an immortality um, and um, and Freud kind of brings that up in Beyond the Pleasure Principle as this kind of narcissistic drive of the cancer cells. Speaking of Freud, uh, you, you have a lot to say about the humanization and creative potential of prostheses, and you point out that they're, um, they're objects toward which there's much ambivalence as they represent both illness and injury. So mo- most of this you say about Freud's jaw but you are at other moments less positive about prostheses and specifically breast implants, which you, with with Audre Lorde, um, view negatively, maybe, uh, as fetishes that disavow loss and, and interfere with the work work of mourning. So maybe you can you can respond to that. Um, yeah, I mean, definitely, Lord takes the lead, which I definitely follow on a criticism of the prostheses. Um, I mean, I chose to 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 write about Lord in conversation with Freud because they, partly because they both had such a strong relationship to the prosthesis. I mean, for 
Freud, it was an absolute necessity, although he had a kind of ambivalence about them. I mean, he would have chosen his prosthetic cigar over his prosthetic jaw any day. Um, so, but, but Lord did, you know, very uh, publicly come out against the breast prosthesis as, as an object that was intended to kind of mask a woman's injury and, um, as a what she calls a a prosthetic pretense, um, and I, I I was convinced by that through my own experience um, that there was definitely a uh, there's a definite cultural pressure for women and as I mean not only post mastectomy women but all women to live up to certain normative body ideals um, which are just kind of accentuated. Um, in the aftermath of a mastectomy. Um, yeah, I think I think Lord, you point out in the book, she one of her criticisms is, is that it makes post mastectomy women invisible to one another, and it blocks a kind of um, potential solidarity, or I don't know. Uh, but but you're more more positive about Freud's jaw, and you deal with it as something that um, he invests, the libidinally is able to invest paradoxically through the smoking. Yes, definitely. Yes. <laughs> it is paradoxical. I mean, I would say also just to, I mean, yes, my criticism is remains of the kind of, I would say the prosthetic pretense or the prosthetic impulse. Um, but I would say that since Lord's time, and even since my diagnosis, which was you know, like uh, eight years ago, um, things have changed, and there's uh, so much breast cancer activism, and, that, and activism specifically around bearing the chest, um, bearing the flat chest, or bearing the asymmetrical chest, um, and you know that's kind of heartening. Uh, Although I would say that there are still a lot of the psychology behind it that um, that really still exists in the medical industry and and culturally in terms of uh, the cultural acceptance of 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 just non-normative bodies in general. Yeah, and and so much of the discourse is around. Um, aesthetics or the cosmetic element and not about uh, pleasure or sensation, which is kind of overlooked or or just buried. (laughs) Right. Absolutely. And that's where Lord's coming from. And, and, And certainly also that she was saying, and this is still true, that it's the detraction from really researching the causes and pointing to the environmental, uh, toxins that are causing the cancers. You know, I, I'm curious about um, your, your choice of figures. Uh, it, it, I mean, they make total sense in that Lord, Freud, and Sedgwick all struggled uh, with cancer. They all ultimately lost their lives to cancer. But, um, you know, there are other figures too, like Ed Said, for example, is just like off the top of my head, who does come up in the book. Um, so, yeah, why these figures, or how did it? How did the book, you know, sort of shape? How was it shaped? And 
And uh, what is your favorite chapter? Which one was the <laughs> weirdly? Oh maybe that's goodness. like a, it's a, it's, okay. It's going to be a three part question now. And and also, it, w- would you have included? Uh, were you planning to include others, and then they just sort of fell away, or or yeah? Um, well, as I said, it started with Freud, um, and so that was the obvious first chapter for me. And then, as because of uh, because of Freud's struggle with the prosthesis, I I was very drawn to to Lord as a kind of counterpoint uh, and her criticism of the prosthesis. I mean, they were very different cases, but it just seemed to to be a nice counterpoint. Um, plus, I was very very committed to thinking and writing about a woman of color who suffered from breast cancer and actually produced work in relationship to that. And that was extremely hard to find. (laughs) Uh, I mean, you can practically, I, during the time of researching, I could not find any other figure besides Lord as a woman of color who who herself had cancer and wrote about it. (laughs) Um, so that was a natural choice. And then, uh, then the third one was it took some time. <laughs> um, I toyed with Jean-Luc Nancy. Mm. Um, right, who, who does make who a cameo. Acquired, he makes a, a very important cameo to me <laughs> yeah. um, because of the ways in which he talked about cancer being, well, he literally calls it an, an intruder and that cancer sort of undoes the eye so that I does not equal I. Um, and, and, and that cancer, uh, cancer for Nancy was a product of his uh, in, immunosuppression from a heart transplant. So it was very complex <laughs> um, how he arrived at that. Um, so, and I was also considering and wanted to write about visual artists. Um, like I wasn't intending to write about three literary figures kind of, um, but I wasn't able to f- settle on a, a person that, uh, th- it had to be somebody who had a substantial enough body of work that that really engaged with uh, illness and bodily disorientation. Um, I thought about Hannah Wilkie, um, I thought about Eva Hess, who who died so quickly from cancer that uh, it it was hard for me. I mean, another aspect was this kind of temporality of duration, this kind of chronicity and fatigue of 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 debility and and cancerous attrition. So um, only afterwards, I sort of stumbled on Charlotte Mormon and thought that that would have been interesting. But anyway, it, when, it was when I started reading, I had already read a dialogue on love, uh, Sedgwick's memoir with her therapist about her breast cancer. But when I started to read her articles for MAM, the breast, breast cancer advice column <laughs> called Off My Chest, I was just so struck by them. And they're so funny. And they're so underwritten about you know, so, uh, and the, the fact that she also really engaged with Melanie Klein seemed like a, a nice uh, trilogy then with these three figures. Yeah, and, you, and you're very engaged with Melanie Klein. Can, can you maybe say something about Melanie Klein's concepts and how they've 
how they shape uh, the chapters. Also, Sedgwick, I, I I had also read a dialogue on love, but I'd never seen this off my chest, which sounds amazing. <laughs> and and it's true that I don't know of anybody else. I'm sure there are people who have written something somewhere, but I don't know very much about it. But um, yeah. she, she employs gallows humor. I, I also liked, liked her <laughs> discussion of, of gallows humor in um, yes. dealing with uh, metastatic. So cancer. yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe yeah, something definitely. about reparation or, or the way that each, I'm curious, um, or I, I'd like our listeners to, to get a sense of the way that <clears throat> this this concept plays out in the book. Yeah, well, you were asking about Melanie Klein, and it, it's funny that um, surprised me. <laughs> I didn't expect to take up Klein through much of the book, and in a lot of ways, I feel like I take up Klein more than Freud um, in some ways. Um, I think partly that came from uh, her theorization around part objects and I started thinking initially about uh, for the first chapter about prostheses as being kind of prosthetic uh, prosthesis being a kind of part object um, prosthesis as a kind of psychic supplement Um, and then Freud has that great quote in his last one of his last notes about how space may be the projection of the extension of the psychical apparatus. And he says, psyche is extended. I mean, the note is so short. It's like, that's basically it. And I was like, what, what does that mean? You know, like, but the, the, so, but that stuck with me, like the idea of the psyche being extended. And I was like, it certainly seems to be the case with the prosthesis. Um, so anyway, that got me to thinking about this kind of the part object prosthesis um, and um, Melanie Klein writes a lot about part objects. <laughs> and then her work does seem to mirror certain aspects of cancer, like we we're talking about the kind of intrusion and invasion of cancer. Like she's so much about internalization of and, and projective identification. And, and her work is, her writing is so visceral and so bodily. Um, that much of the time it's a con- it's even confusing whether she's talking about kind of psychic objects or even like corporeal objects yes and and with in lord's case in particular it really there's like the bad breast right and the, exactly and and that that's persecutory and is attacking her and she feels like she has to chop it off in order to to live mm-hmm. so it's really i think through sedgwick that um, and, and Sedgwick herself interested in Melanie Klein's concepts of re- reparation. That I think that um, that that idea comes into the book. That um, that in some ways I think that Sedgwick was trying to resolve how t- her 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 relationship to mortality through Klein's. Um, concepts of reparation. Yeah. Can you, can you say just some more about that? In fact, do you think there's a difference in the way that Sedgwick and Lord understood reparation or not understood so much the concept, but kind of enacted it in their work? And I mean, Lord's uh, politicization of, of cancer, for instance, or Sedgwick's, you know, she refers to loosing rather than losing. Um, as like the way each of them dealt with this queer temporality of terminal illness. 
how they, you know, you talk about how they, they struggle to subjectivize their deaths in a way. Lord was certainly not interested in psychoanalysis. <laughs> um, so I think she would definitely rejected the idea of, of reparation in this, in the way that Klein might suggest it. Um, I mean, she was just a much more um, politically active. I think she thinks of maybe reparation in the political sense. Uh, uh, and I think about Sedgwick's article uh, that, I'm forgetting it's it's called something around affect and 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 Melanie Klein that um, she basically says Klein's paranoid schizoid phrase phase is um, she associates that to this kind of more overt political activism um, and she associates Klein's depressive position with more of the state that she's in um, of ambivalence and struggle. Um, and then, and she kind of coalesces that um, Kleinian depressive position with Buddhism, which was very um, key to her later thinking um, such that uh, you almost could say that repar reparation is a process of pedagogy and I try to write about that that in some ways it's a it's a process of learning and teaching and and that's and then that has, goes to this idea of learning to loosen oneself from this kind of tight need to hang on to life itself or to be uh, the tight need to, to perform as a particular kind of individual as opposed to no one in particular, um, which is a kind of Buddhist philosophy. You mentioned how you wanted to do a visual, you wanted to include a visual artist, and Sedgwick definitely, um, toward in the last years of her life especially, turned to at least crafts and working with textures and, and the vi visual and, and tactile uh, forms. Um, but that was a side note. But I, you know, so it's interesting though that you, you, you sort of dismiss the connection, uh, or, or of course, Lord would never have, you know, sort of embraced the Kleinian reparation version of reparation, and yet you use Klein to re specifically in the chapter to read Lord. So I was wondering about that choice and what resonated, or how did you sort of hook them together then? Right. <laughs> and I think I make a comment early on about uh, choosing two incredibly contrasting figures and seeing what would come of that. <laughs> um, <laughs> there you so, go. Um, yeah, yeah. But they, again, that way in which Klein is really effective in describing anxiety and aggression and sadism and paranoia. <laughs> I feel like those kinds of emotions are very present in Lord's writings, definitely in her poetry. And and I keep going back to the visceral nature of it, um, but and also in her politics. I mean, I would say one other thing about, um, and I don't know that I am explicit about that in the book, but that I also think that Lord might rephrase the idea of reparation in 
in terms of her political work as a kind of mothering or as we know as, as self-care um, because as she said you know her the care of the self is a kind of act of political warfare for her um, so I mean I really think that she she kind of wanted to galvanize her community uh, to to mother themselves and to you know enact self-care yeah I, I mean I don't know if I made this up just now or or if you wrote it but she offered herself in a way as, as an introject or mm-hmm. yeah yeah I came to to say that I mean she's explicitly sort of messaged her community not to take her up as a fetish um, but at the same time she's she asked them and offered herself to as a kind of tool um, which really made me think of her as a kind of transitional object, um, as, uh, as a kind of psychic tool for use, for change. Yeah, so yeah. So in case it hasn't been totally clear, the chapters on Lord and Sedgwick uh, grapple with, um, largely with psychic effects of mastectomy and uh, or are specifically about that. And so, I mean, I guess I'm curious, in, in what ways do you think is losing a breast different from losing another body part? I mean, is there, is there something, you know, cause it's, there's a reason why Klein fits so well, et cetera. So maybe you can, you can say something there. Well, because I, I mean, psychically the breast is the first object, at least as, as psychoanalysis defines it. And I was very um, struck by re looking at how Freud des- describes how we, begin the processes of identification and he says he literally says he makes this like beautiful little dialogue between the child and the the breast and he says the first the child first says i am the object the breast is a part of me i am the breast but then that as you know a, a child develops that evolves into i have the object so this this progression from I am the breast to I have the breast um, really struck me because it seemed, and actually Lord does bring this up because she actually does use the word regression, that that, um, that a mastectomy, in, but even more so medical profession in Western culture encourages that a regression to the past so that women who've lost their breasts might, I was conjecturing, um, kind of be thrown back to that infantile stage in which, you know, on some psychic level, it's no longer that you have a breast, but that you are a breast. And such that, you know, and that's the criticism of reconstruction for me is that, um, is that there's a kind of identification of the woman with the reconstructed breast such that it is what what defines her as a complete woman. Mm-hmm. You can be whole again, or of course, yeah, right. That's the, the both the promise, but then in, in, immediately there are disclaimers about how, well, actually it doesn't look anything, you won't feel anything and et cetera. So, right. It's this, it's, it's a strange discourse for sure. Um, okay. So, yeah. I'm not sure so much that the disclaimers, I think that my feeling was that is that those disclaimers have increased that though I mean and I've heard read stories of you know 
20 years ago <laughs> that, you know, you, you were not told that those things. And, and even 10 years ago, you weren't necessarily made aware, you know, silicone implants age, you have to continually upkeep them, you know, they, that you won't have any feeling um, like you don't, you weren't necessarily told that in advance. Yeah. Um, so let's, I wanted to say something, uh, before we, we run out of time about uh, something more about Freud and specifically, well, let's, let's talk about the museums. Cause there is a chapter on, um, and how you kind of worked that in or how you came to that chapter or, you know, what happened? Cause you were on this path and then, uh, it, it is the, the music that you compare the experiences of the Vienna and London museums. I was wondering about which you like better or did you have, because they're so different. I, I, you know, I don't think I realized that I've never been to the Vienna one. I never realized that there was like nothing there but photographs. <laughs> um, so maybe, yeah, just you could just say something about your experience. Yeah. Of course, I like the Vienna one better <laughs> because there's nothing. So there. say why. <laughs> because it's so strange. It's a really odd environment in which you're looking at images of the room that you're in as it was, you know, in the 1930s. Um, but so you're standing in that built space, but and it's being echoed within the photographic representation. But, you know, one space is kind of the absence and the other is the presence. Um, and it, it's, it's just a very odd space. But they are, um, there's something, well, I'll, I'll say it in the, the opposite, in, 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 in London, although I obviously enjoy that space as well, it is a much more distancing space in a lot of ways because they have to protect the objects. So, you know, you're, you're, have you been to no, London? No, no. I'm yeah. embarrassed to say I haven't. No. I'm going next time. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so it's like, of course, it's bad. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, yeah. So everybody goes to see the couch and, you know, you can stand around and see the couch, but you can't get that close to it because, you know, and you can't get that close to the uh, antiquities. Um, so there's, they're roped off and with the antiquities, which are quite small, you can't see that much. And because the lighting is so dim, um, it's also very hard to, to see. Um, and then there's like the no photography rule. So... I don't know. It, there's a lot in the London Museum that makes it feel like a mausoleum, <laughs> museified, um, and uh, and you know, as I said, kind of alienating. Um, maybe there's something to the Vienna Museum, although I, as I write about, I find it very melancholic. But there's there's something to the absence that makes it a place that is open for contemplation and reflection. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Interesting that objects were so important to Freud, these, all these little objects and, his, but yet the, their absence is what um, feels more authentic somehow uh, because you're in the, I mean, it's the rooms themselves that, 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 that are moving 
it seems. I don't know. I mean, based on what you just said. Yeah. In some ways that I do think it is that they are, you mean, moving in the sense of affecting. Um, yeah. But also as you were just talking, I was thinking, and I hope I convey it in some way in my chapter that what I think is really interesting is, is that we have both of them <laughs> and that we actually have also the Library of Congress, Freud papers, and, you know, that the archive sort of is, is in multiple locations. Um, and so it's not any one, it's not any one site. Um, it's distributed. Was there any, um, was there anything about the story as you, as you delved into this um, Freud's cancer story, was there anything that surprised you that you was intriguing that you didn't know? Oh gosh, there was so much that surprised me. <laughs> Practically <laughs> everything surprised me. I mean, the fact that he used a clothespin to keep his mouth open so that he could smoke surprised me. <laughs> right. um, the I don't know. Um, just yeah, the incredible ordeal of of this. He had like 10 of them, right? He had 10 different prostheses. At least. I don't At least, yeah. yeah. Maybe more. <clears throat> and then certainly, like, it just seemed like an endless series of, of surgical procedures. Um, uh, mm -hmm. Yeah. And then throughout that time, he was so incredibly prolific. Um, right. Yeah. That, that was striking. I also paid attention to that. That was... Uh, that was amazing. I mean, I do think and, um, that in some yeah. ways, and I didn't want to make too much of this because, because I, I didn't want to suggest that illness is like a positive thing, <laughs> but, but it definitely was true. I think that, that, and, and not just illness, but the certain kind, like um, an illness that has a very, an urgency to it. Um, was galvanizing for all of the figures and that they definitely consciously uh, really sort of accelerated their productivity because of it. Because they really just wanted to get business done before it was too late. I mean, they, they did have like all of them more than a decade to, to, to be productive, but I, you know, I think with Audrey Lord, definitely her daughter has said this, and and uh, and it's in books and films that she she really took it as a kind of call to action when she was diagnosed. And and it was in the service, and well, at least at least with Lord and with um, with Sedgwick, the writing was was directly related to to the cancer experience to the experience right. with cancer, right? And and this and in, in Sedgwick's case, very explicitly with this experience of this kind of temporality of of living with metastatic disease. Mm -hmm. Although I I do kind of just I pull out that those aspects of her writing. I mean, she was writing more broadly about queer theory and and very much about AIDS. So she was writing about illness, but not necessarily cancer. Right. 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 Um, so yeah, I just sorry. Bef also, before we go, I wanted to talk uh, talk about the snow globe oh. <laughs> for a second. So the 
can you describe this this object? I'm so mad that you that you was confident. Can I describe it? Though? It was a Freud. Okay, yeah. Well, can, can I don't know um, exactly. This is sort of. I didn't expect that I was going to bring this up, but um, we were talking about the museums, and I think you got it in Vienna, correct? I did. Yes. Um, that was the. I think that was the only place you could get it. I don't. At least when I went to the London Museum, there was no snow globe. <laughs> and it, for the for the listeners who are who are now thinking of going out and getting the the snow globe, it does not it's no longer produced. So, yeah, except some some airport official somewhere. I'm sure has, if I really, I mean, I probably could maybe hunt down somebody who has it on eBay. But um, I actually did look, and I didn't find it. But maybe it'll come up at some point. <laughs> Do you want to say anything um, about it? I mean, this, this is like giving away the final chapter. <laughs> oh, no, no, oh, it's oh, fine. It? Um, yeah. Wait, spoil, spoiler, spoiler alert. alert! Don't you can stop listening now if you don't want the spoilers. Sorry. Yeah. Um, yeah, the last trip I took to the Vienna Museum, I got this little Freud snow globe. I had a. I remember it, but we know how fallible memory is. Um, a little bust of Freud that would like get covered with snow, and then you would shake it, and it would uh, un, uh, clear up a bit, and then it would settle again on him. Um, and then we tried to bring this um, back from Vienna. Oh, the reason it's confusing is because we went through Heathrow. <laughs> Um, and they were very scrupulous and they went through every single item in our luggage. And we had actually put this snow globe into our carry on because we wanted to protect it. And we thought, you know, it would be better in our backpack than in like the suitcase. Um, so, uh, it, it came out and it was confiscated because it exceeded the liquid limit. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, so, <laughs> so for me, that was the kind of uh, example of the material lost object. <laughs> mm, okay, I, and and what what drew you is was it just was it something about the way it? <laughs> what drew you to that object? I mean, it's it's really so compelling, but maybe because it's just so odd, you know? Like, <laughs> why would? Yeah, but something about the. Um, Oh, I don't know the the action of turning it around and watching the it settle again and then shaking it up. Again. Yeah, I mean, I go through this little thing about how you know a snow globe it presents a certain kind of worldview, <laughs> and um, and it just is so funny to me to 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 present Freud as a kind of uh, icon within that, and especially because Freud had said that psychoanalysis cannot present a worldview that was kind of too impossible for it to present a worldview so here was this attempt to sort of crystallize a, a worldview with Freud at the center and then and then it it just also struck me that I remembered that um, Lachlan Jane had written in her book Malignant about how when you ha get cancer, you get like this influx of these of paper products from, you know, bills to medical treatment uh, notices or whatever, like you have prescriptions. You, and, then, and then she described it distinctly as a kind of like a snow, snowstorm of 
<laughs> and I, I'm, I'm now wondering, I can't totally remember. She may have even used the words snow globe. It's in my book. <laughs> I'll have to check it again. But so it, it, it just seemed like a, a way to conclude the book. And uh, as I said, it was, it was, the snow globe was an actual <laughs> physical lost object at the same time as it was a kind of psychic lost object. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was very memorable. Um, I'm glad you wrote about it. I guess it was a way of recovering it in some way or memorializing the loss. <laughs> um, so bef- before we go, uh, maybe you can tell us something about your current projects. What are you working on now? Um, I'm actually working on a film uh, based on and inspired by Audre Lorde's The Cancer Journals. Um, so it's a, uh, I have had like I have had twenty five people read from the book and talk about its impact for them and uh, and for the contemporary moment. Is, is it almost done, or are you still? Where are you in the production? It is very close. I'm in post production. I hope to be done by the end of the summer. Uh, I hope to see it. <laughs> I look forward. <laughs> um, okay, Lana. Uh, Thank you so much. It's been great having you on the podcast. Um, I've been speaking with Lana Lynn about her book, Freud's Jaw and Other Lost Objects, Fractured Subjectivity in the Face of Cancer. Thanks again, Lana. Thank you so much for the invitation. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in. Till next time.